Good morning. morning. I'm Linda Ojala, and today I'm filling in for Tim Jennings, who is in Scottsdale, Arizona today. He's at the May Day Symposium, joining a group of other speakers on the subject of epidemic rise of anxiety, depression, and suicide. Today we're going to be talking about Lesson 9 of Family Seasons, Sabbath School Lesson, Times of Loss. Let's pray. Dear Father, I would venture to say that none of us has gone free of loss. In fact, just now I've been asked to pray for one of our class members, Teresa's mother, who is improving but has been in critical condition. Please be with her and her family. Give them comfort. Give them healing. Be with us today as we talk about the subject of loss as we try to learn your perspective, as we gain an appreciation for your way of dealing with things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now in the Sabbath overview section, the memory text is, Yet indeed I also count all things loss, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's Philippians 3.8. So that's what the lesson says is the memory text. I would like to venture to say the memory text could have been what Jesus says to his disciples. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's John 16.23. We are not promised a trouble-free life. And anyone that says if you're a Christian, you know, God will keep the troubles from happening, you've got to know that it's not true. We are in what I think of as the prisoner of war camp of the universe. We, I'm more surprised when, bad, when good things happen than when bad things happen. I mean, we're prisoners of war. Satan has taken charge of this planet, and we have the results of that terrible decision that we allowed to happen, our uh, progenitors, Adam and Eve. Because loss was never God's plan. The circle of life that we call it was never the plan. Survival of the fittest was never the plan. Eve wanted the knowledge of good and evil to be like God. She felt like God was holding out on her, keeping something from her that was vital, not sharing. And now we all have the knowledge of good and evil, much to our dismay and the dismay of the watching universe, because we aren't in this alone. The Bible says that we are spectacles. We are being watched by the entire universe how this process is going. It's not just our dismay, but the whole universe is dismayed at what has happened based on our choice. But first, before we get more into the lesson, I want to just start and go back a little farther than the lesson does. I want to talk a little bit about God's loss. We think very egocentrically, our pain, our problems, our losses. But I'd like to just use your imagination for a little bit and think about God's losses. And, I, and there's some texts that come to mind that help me understand a little bit more that we aren't alone in this, and we aren't alone in our sorrow. Genesis 6, 5 to 13, just before the flood, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth and had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. 
The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Do we ever really think about how God feels about all this? He created us with perfection, with everything for our senses, the smells of flowers, the birds, everything, beautiful stuff, everything we could ever want was here. But because he made us and we made the decision against him, now his heart was filled with pain at what his children had decided and had become. Another evidence of how he felt about things was about the Exodus time, Exodus 3, 7 to 9. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, bring them up out of the land into a good spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And we see something similar at Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the angels tell, uh, one turns out to be, I'm sure, what we, who we now call Jesus. I've heard the cry that has come out of Sodom and come down to see if it is, I'm paraphrasing, as bad as it sounds. He, of course, knew, but he wanted Abraham to understand that his perspective was he was coming in response to the cries When you live, when you make terrible choices, you're addicted, you're you're miserable, you're sick, you've got disease and so on. It is not a happy experience. And God hears those cries. In various instances through the Bible, he hears the cries. We are his children, whether we make bad or good choices. Hitler is his child. We're his child. The best or the worst person in the world is all his children, many of whom have made... uh, the choice against him, but that still doesn't make him love him less. I mean, if any of us have ever had children that rebelled against you, no, nobody has. (laughs) You know the pain you feel. You love the child, but you hate the sin that is destroying your child and ruining their life and making it just so hard, much harder than it has to be. But you still love your child. Think of Adam and Eve's losses. This is where this is where the lesson starts. Adam and Eve's losses. The loss of innocence, the loss of the tree of life, their perfect garden home, the animals that provided the skins they were. Unselfishness was replaced by selfishness, conflict, blame, a desire for control and supremacy over each other. The death of Abel, finally one of them lost a spouse, then the surviving partner lost his life. So many losses as a result of one decision. And of course, we have Jesus coming to offer his life as a sacrifice. Here's where I get into a little bit of speculation. This is me. Based on my reading and study and prayer and so on, this is my view. Eve took the attitude of God being harsh running them out of the garden and away from the tree of life just because of one little error. Can't I have a do-over? You know, one little thing and I'm out. How, how hard is that? How hard must a God be who doesn't forgive that and let me go back and do my own thing? And then I feel like Cain undoubtedly took her attitude and felt like it was such a little thing to do something a little different than what God asked for. After all, he was bringing an offering, 
and the offering was to the correct God, but the offering was the fruit of his own work. He was not going to humble himself to ask his younger brother for a lamb from a herd of his brother's work. Now, he missed the whole point of the offering, pointing to salvation through the sacrificial lamb of God. Sadly, though Ellen White talks about seeing Adam in heaven, this would be in the Great Controversy, pages 647 648, she does never mention seeing Eve in heaven. Adam wasn't deceived by Satan or his wife. She was, but he put his love for his wife above his love for God and thinking he couldn't live without her. He didn't think that if God gave him Eve, he could also give him another companion. After all is said and done, you know, the saddest thing is he might spend eternity without her after all. After all the decision was made, I would think that if Eve was there, Ellen White would have said, there you see Adam and Eve about to meet their maker, but it's only Adam. Adam is all she ever talks about seeing in heaven. And that's, you know, I could be wrong about that. I don't know. But I'm, I'm thinking that Cain didn't far, far fall from the tree <laughs> of the belief of God being kind of harsh. If you listen to the first question from the serpent, the insinuation is that God is withholding something. The way it was phrased was brilliant, simply brilliant. Is Did God say you are not to eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden? Okay, now Satan knew well that God had not prohibited them from eating the fruit of the trees of all the trees of the garden. He'd only prohibited them from eating from one fruit or one tree. And then Eve lies to Satan about God. How many, how many of you knew that? That Eve, Eve was the first human to tell a lie. She lied about God. Anybody know what it is? Or even touched it. Thank you. She corrected the serpent and said, We may not eat of the fruit of the tree, one tree of the garden, nor shall we touch it. God has, God has told us not to eat of the fruit of one tree of the, of the, of the garden, nor shall we touch it. Yeah, I think right then Satan knew that he had, he had a, a, a believer. And you can wildly speculate on the methodology used uh, by Eve to convince Adam to take the fruit and his motivations and this, that, and the other. There are, I've heard dozens of different theories and probably hear another dozen before I go to sleep. Um, we have some we have some insightful writing. It, it, it's a it's a great read to go read the first five chapters of Patriarchs and Prophets, from the why was sin permitted through creation through the the expulsion of the gardens. She has some very wonderful insights there. Some people believe, and this would be more in Tim's uh, bailiwick since he's a psychiatrist, but some people believe that the changes occurred in Adam and Eve in their fall, that instead of having open honesty, it was actually not only lying, but it was also the birth of what we call sub our subconscious. A lot of the times we don't even know ourselves. God knows us better than we do. We think we know ourselves. Peter thought he knew himself, but God knew him better than he did. We not only hid from God behind the trees, we hid from ourselves. We hide from each other. We're afraid all the time. We have, can you imagine a life without fear? We either have loss or dread loss our entire lives. 
We're going to lose our job, our reputation, our husband, our stuff. You know, our wife, our kids, our health. Anything you can possibly think of, either we have done it, we have lost it, or we might. We might. You lock stuff. I was brought up around Washington, D.C. You you lock everything when you're in it. You lock everything when you're out of it. (laughs) You don't leave anything in sight in your car. Because that incites people to, somebody broke into our car. They saw a camera on the back seat. This was years ago, broke into my parents' car. Imagine then what a life without any fear would be like. You realize the adjustment in thinking we would have to make? Here we're told perfect love casts out fear. But perfect love sometimes is hard to come by. We are so brought up in fear. I was, you know, living every house on our block was broken into except ours because we had a roaming German shepherd in the house. And I think that prevented a lot of mischief from going on. He wasn't confined to any one room and he was pretty upset if anyone came near to the house. Imagine a world where every single other being you meet cares more about you than you do about yourself. Imagine traveling the universe and absolutely having no fear of anything or anyone. No fear of injury, no fear of dying, no fear that someone's going to take advantage of you in some way or another. And once you really think about that kind of life and the big (sighs) relief that will be, then imagine the ultimate loss of that eternal life, where all we ever experience is this world of fear, and we never experience the eternal life of love and no fear at all. The lesson doesn't really talk about the loss of eternal life, but I think that's probably the ultimate loss we ought to be talking about, is Satan tries not only with Eve, but with every one of us to do the one thing he knows will cause us to get away from God, and that is to break our communication with him. He knows if he can keep us busy, even with good things, too busy to read our Bibles. I'm not even going to ask how many people studied their lesson this week. I'm not going to ask that. Based on years of leading Sabbath schools and being part of that, I can probably guess it's a fair number of us who have not studied even the lesson or the Bible this week. And I'm not, I'm just including us in the lump because I do the same thing from time to time. Of course, when I'm, I'm leading, I will be studying it. But, um, the, the thing is Satan tries every possible way to get us busy, to get us addicted, to get us spending way too much time doing other things and losing out on this time with him because If we open our hearts to God and stay connected with him, God will fix us. He'll mend our broken places. He'll heal our grief, our loss. He'll draw us to him. He'll he'll encourage the love that we have for him to grow. So where does Satan always try to get to us? Is our trust of God, our time for God. I would encourage each one of us to really Spend some time talking with God. Really study your Bible. The end of time is is very near. And even if God doesn't come in our lifetime, we never know when our end of life will happen. It could be driving off today. This could be our end of time today. 
So it doesn't really do any good to think, well, I'll get round to it sometime. Today is the day. Well, uh, back to the memory text. I, one of the things that struck me was Paul's perspective um, that he, he almost seemed grateful for loss. Mm-hmm. And, and it took, and it's taken me you know, nearly 50 years to, to appreciate that perspective. And I mean, how many of us are thankful that um, loved ones die? How many of us are thankful that parents die and, and pets? And how many of us are thankful that leaves fall off a tree in the fall? And how, how many of us are thankful that our houses get broken into or that things get stolen or things get lost? Or burnt down. Or burned or, or whatever. I, you, all of those things God allows to happen in order to instill in us a yearning for something better, a yearning for the the uh, neighborhood like she described, where you don't have to, where fear is removed, where there, there's a, there's just a, a deep internal desire for something better. Uh, in in the Patriarchs and Prophets uh, book, Ellen uh, Weiss describes Adam and Eve's pain at seeing the first leaf fall from a tree. It was greater greater sorrow to them than than modern day family losing a child. Let that breathe for a little bit. That's one of the most stressful things that a human being currently can endure is the loss of a child. Imagine thinking that about a, a, a leaf falling off a tree. It really changes a, a perspective to perhaps be thankful for loss. It is hard when you, not only loss, but it could be a loss of a marriage. Sure. That's hard. But yet, in the process, I think what we learn and come through, and what we learn from it, the experience with God that it gives us, the closeness, you know, because... It just draws me closer to him because without him, I can't do life. I really can't do life without him. So going through all of these hard things has, as a result, has brought me closer to him. So I think that's his purpose. It, it, was, a, it was a secondary, it wasn't his intent originally, it wasn't his design, but yes, that, that's, I, that it, it is. It works out that way. That he designs loss to to produce in us a yearning for a closeness with him. I agree. That's right. We'll be talking about that shortly too. I want to also talk a little bit about this "God is in control" thing. My mother is always saying that, and I've mentioned it before in Sabbath school here as well. The challenge of faith during loss is a button that Satan loves to push. Why, and we have people we know and love who have left the church, left God and everything over this very issue. If God is a good God, how could he allow this and all this loss and all the pain, even his pain, how could he allow this to happen? Couldn't he have practiced a selective breeding program like the Nazis were trying to do? If he knows all things and he knew who was going to make bad decisions, don't make them. Only make people with, that make good decisions. You know, what if you could do that with your own children? <laughs> uh, I like that child. I'll keep that one. But maybe this one, I'll wait and not do that one. Maybe I'll do another one. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes in your life, you might give that some thought. 
you're like, I wish I'd known how tough might life might be. Children are one of the people who can tear out your heart and stomp that sucker flat. <laughs> so why do you think God could not do He's the only one, let's say, he's the only one who would know that he'd done it. He didn't have to tell people. He just doesn't create them. They'd never know what, that he was selectively reading, <laughs> that he was only creating the good ones and not the bad ones. He, no one would know but him. Why could he not do that and be the God we know and love? Any ideas? Because of the very definition, we're saying good. In God's mind, I think he's saying those that choose me. You can't choose if there's not another choice. You can't make somebody love you. You can't make somebody respect or or trust you. You can't create character. Donna. It also says that God loves those that went the, against him. That he loves them just as much. But from people's perspective, including the various ones we know very dearly, God is a horrible monster for allowing this to happen. And they can't worship a God like that. I think it's their distorted picture of God. They, they have a very distorted picture. Sin by its very nature is the one that's causing all the hurt and the pain. It's not God. But we've been said, we've been told, as I just mentioned, God is in control. Is God in control when someone kidnaps your child, molests them, kills them? Is he in control if somebody drinks and goes out and drives drunk? And runs over you and kills you? Is God in control of that? He can't operate by just creating those that are going to do what he wants because it's not in his character. That's right. That's the base issue is he would not be who he is if he operated that way. And the control thing, um, you know, I always had that Two, which was under, well, God's in control, but the, the, but then you hit that. And it just, why do some things happen that should never happen if God's in control? And so it still comes down to God honors choice. But to me, one of the biggest things uh, for me spiritually for many, many years now has been my understanding of Romans 8.28. Because when I was young... I was taught that verse said, and we know that God works together, all things work together for good to them that love God. All things work together for good. And yet you'd see things that you can see no good in and say, well, have faith. But when, you know, a drunk driver runs over your child or something, you know, well, so this is good. Let's praise God. It, it makes no sense at all, but where the change happened for me was, it depends on translation, I believe, but, or else I was just missing it. That one little two-letter word in there, I-N, in. And we know that in all things, God works together for good to those who love him. Um, and that just changed the whole perspective for me when I got that little two-word one day. And it was, God doesn't cause all things, and he doesn't even 
quote when you say, well, he allowed it, so he willed it. No, he does not will it. I heard somebody say recently that their child died. died. Well, this was God's plan. And God once had to take them home with him. No, it's too bad for you. (laughs) But what I understand now is God is saying, no matter what comes your way in a sinful world, the results of sin in this world affect all. Those who follow me choose me and those who do not. They affect, sin affects us all. But he's saying in Romans 8, 28, that in all things, it doesn't matter what comes your way, if you will place it in my hands, if you will surrender it to me, give it to me, I am giving you a promise that, no, I didn't will it, I didn't choose it, but I will bring something good out of this experience. Somewhere, every time you give everything to me, you place it in my hands, then I can work with that. We can go from there. Oh, you made that choice was a good choice. I can work with that. Oh, you made a poor choice there. But if you give it to me, I can work with that. Or choices you didn't have control over. Joseph would be a fine example when he said to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. God used the evil they did to create a situation where Joseph became leader of a whole other nation, practically. I mean, nobody would choose that as a career path. I think I'll become, you know, uh, prime minister of Russia. Okay, so how would I go about doing that? I mean, nobody would choose to be sold by their brothers into slavery, lied about and put into jail and so on as a trajectory towards becoming prime minister of another country and then saving a bunch of people from famine. Nobody would look at that as the, as the right way to, to you know, get where you need to go. But God was able to use the, the poor decision-making of people for ultimate good. And I always, in my tough times, I think of Joseph as a fine example. Uh, Job is another fine example. Habakkuk, if we, we're not the only ones to ask this question. If you read the book of Habakkuk, which is a short book and quick read, Habakkuk asked this question, why do you tolerate wrong? <laughs> Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, then, law is paralyzed, justice never prevails, the wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. He says that in, in uh, chapter uh, 1, verses 3 and 4. But then he shows God's answer is also written there. Uh, when he talks about, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness and stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when the warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to uh, devour the wretched that were in hiding. And this I want to really um, hone in on. Though the fig tree does not bud and there's no grapes in the vines, though the olive crop fails, this is still in Habakkuk, And the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. That's chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. I want to just mention in this God is control before we move a little bit beyond that. 
1 John 5.19 is a good verse to really look at regarding this because John says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. So I think that Satan tries to use this God is in control thing, a button that he pushes, because when bad things happen, he wants us to blame God. He wants us to turn against God. He wants us to distance ourselves from God. But John is saying the whole world is under control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We need to know the true character of God and not accuse him falsely like so many do. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So what is God in control of? How he deals with our dying planet and the beings he created. He gave us gifts, freedom, attributes, He doesn't manipulate and he's not a puppet master. He gives us the the ability to procreate, but he doesn't force us to procreate in a certain way. We could rape, we could pillage, you know, he could do any way we use this. He gave the gift, but we have the freedom of how we use it. I don't know, are, are any of you familiar with the songwriter called Nicole Nordeman? If you haven't heard her song, she is uh, just a beautiful songwriter, and the lyrics are amazing. And it's how I came to know her was that somebody sang a song of hers in the College Dale University Church. And I just want to read the lyrics to you because this gave me a whole different perspective on loss and on gratitude that uh, Russell was saying. Send some rain. Would you send some rain Because the earth is dry and needs to drink again. And the sun is high and we are sinking in the shade. Would you send a cloud, thunder long and loud. Let the sky grow black and send some mercy down. Surely you can see that we are thirsty and afraid. But maybe not. Not today. Maybe you'll provide in other ways. And if that's the case, we'll give thanks to you with gratitude for lessons learned and how to thirst for you. How to bless the very sun that warms our face if you never send us rain. Daily bread. Give us daily bread. Bless our bodies. Keep our children fed. Fill our cups. Then fill them up again tonight. Wrap us up and warm us through. Tucked away beneath our sturdy roofs. Let us slumber safe from danger's view this time. Or maybe not. Not today. Maybe you'll provide in other ways. And if that's the case... We'll give thanks to you with gratitude, a lesson learned to hunger after you. That a starry sky offers a better view if no roof is overhead, and if we never taste that bread. Oh, the differences that often are between everything we want and what we really need. So, grant us peace, Jesus, grant us peace. Move our hearts to hear a single beat between alibis and enemies tonight. Or maybe not, not today. Peace might be another world away. And if that's the case, we'll give thanks to you with gratitude for lessons learned and how to trust in you that we are blessed beyond what we could ever dream in abundance or in need. And if you never grant us peace, but Jesus, would you please? 
And the song, the the song is beautiful. I'm, I wish you could hear the whole thing. Uh, and ha- if you, it's on, it's on um, line. If you look it up, you can look up Nicole Nordeman. And the name of the song is Gratitude. I, um, that gave me a whole different perspective on you want, you ask. We, we treat God a little like a vending machine. Help with this, take care of that, heal this person, give me this. Da, da, da. Uh, if I pray, surely you'll give me back what I want when I want it. And this song really sat me back and said, it's true that we don't always see or get what we want when we want it. And maybe God has bigger and better things in mind to learn. Now, just moving to Sunday's lesson, loss of health. Um, we often feel kind of helpless in loss. We're thousands of years from the tree of life, and we feel it, especially when it comes to uh, our health or length of life. Most of us will have ill health at some point unless trauma gets us first. It talks about, it has several actual verses in the lesson that we can briefly talk about. Um, we, it talks about how we as parents would much rather be us that be the sick or dying rather than our children. To see that happen to our children is just heart-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching to God, too. So it talks about uh, these verses having in common Matthew fifteen twenty-two to 28, who's the Canaanite woman begging for Jesus to cast out the demon in her daughter. I find it interesting that he retorts, it's not right to give the children's bread to the, toss it to the dogs. I mean, he's actually calling her a dog. Her response, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. She was a mother. (laughs) She was not going to be pushed back. She was going after what she really wanted from her child. And Jesus' response was, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And the daughter was healed from that very hour. Mark five twenty two to 24, synagogue ruler Jairus fell at his feet, pleading earnestly for the healing of his dying daughter. Jesus said, you know, the child's not dead, but asleep. And he raised her back to life. And I will say that really in God's perspective, no one is dead yet. Everyone is asleep. No one has actually died eternally. That's death in God's eyes. In his eyes, we're all, whoever we've lost is not dead, yet they're sleeping. And the second death is the, actually what the Bible is talking about requ- uh, regarding death. Yeah, Brian. I think those stories answer, you know, I think we know the answers, but the stories answer the question, why didn't God just create those that would come to him and choose him? Because if Jairus' daughter or any of, any of the other examples had been defiant, hateful children that are laying there in pain and suffering, the parent would have loved them just the same and desired for them to be healed. And that I think God gave us children, marriage, several things in this life to help us get a glimpse into His character because our love for our wife or our child ultimately is not based on their behavior. It's based on their on the relationship. And that's, that's the way He treats us. It's a good insight. Uh, the other two verses are Luke four thirty-eight and 39. Simon Peter's mother-in-law had a fi- high fever. Uh, he healed her from that. 
Uh, John 4, 46 and 54, the royal officer came. He was a totally non, non-believer. Um, he said, uh, beg Jesus to come and heal his son who was close to death. And Jesus said, unless you see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. I don't know that he was actually talking to the guy who was asking. I really almost think he was talking about the, to the crowd around him. Uh, just sort of a, you know, <laughs> this is the level at which people want to, to stop their understanding is just show me miracles and that's all they really want. They don't want the rest of it. But the officer, again, he was not going to be pushed back on that. He said, come, <laughs> you know, down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, you may go, you know, your son will live. And when he checked, the son became healthy that very hour. In each case, the commonality is the family was asking for help for their loved one, not for themselves. Also, with regard to the Canaanite woman, I think he, he used the dog and crumb analogy for the benefit of his disciples who were cherishing uh, bigotry and prejudice of their own. I, mean, I, I don't want it to get out of here that we think that Christ was calling the Canaanite woman a dog. Um, he, was, he was doing that as a demonstration and we, we don't know the tone of his voice, the kindness in his eyes when he's, he's doing this, but it's clear that whatever insult she may have perceived from that, it didn't dissuade her from her purpose. Mm-hmm. And she, she came back with a very crafty reply. Um, and I think, I think he knew what the reply would be. I think he knew what the, what the, uh, the attitude would be. He, he, he fleshed that out for the benefit of those around him listening. I think he was expressing dispel. the outlook of the people, of his disciples. Correct. This is what you would expect. This is what you think. You think you don't give the, 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 the dog. Any, anyone else yeah. what we have. Yeah. It's for us. It's not for anyone else. And so he was just simply mouthing what they were thinking and then turned around and, and praised her. In some cases, he had said, I have found, not found so much faith in, in Israel <laughs> to people outside of Israel. I want to also point out before we skip on to Monday um, about Job. Have you ever noticed? I, I hope everyone uh, appreciates the story of Job that, that Satan did his worst, so to speak, to try to remove Job from God. And did not succeed. But Job kept, he didn't understand he was being tested. He just, everyone, he and everyone thought this was sort of coming from God. But I find it really interesting, even though he was covered head to toe in boils, he'd lost everything. It's interesting that when he finally had his chance to talk to God, because he kept asking, I want my chance to, you know, say, this is wrong, you know, I'm being treated wrongly. Do you notice that that God never explained to him why this was happening? He didn't, he didn't blame Satan. Oh, it's really not me, it's Satan doing this. He didn't give him a reason. All he did was talk about his amazing creation, what he was capable of doing, trying to help Job understand more about him, and ask him to trust him that if I can do all this, you can trust me. I had an experience with that. I've, I've had, I'm 65 now, so I've had many losses and various sad times in my life. When I saw this was the lesson I was going to teach, I thought, I know something about that. <laughs> 
Um, at one point, I got divorced, and it became my turn to tell my young children, who were, I think, 8 and 10 or 9 and 11 at, at that time, I was trying to explain why I was going to get a divorce from their dad. But they were too young to understand a lot of things, and I didn't want to change their relationship with him. So I didn't want to divulge a lot of the things that were happening. So what I did was I sat down and I explained to my kids, you know me, you know what I'm like, you know that I don't give up, that I really try to finish what I start, that I, I try to do the right thing. If there's, I try to find solutions to problems. I, you know, I'm, you know me, and they're like, mm-hmm, <laughs> we know that. I said, there's some things that you can't understand when you, unless you're in a, in a marriage age or in a marriage or anything. There's just some things you will have to wait and find out when you're, when you're older. But just know me. Just know that if there were any other solution to this, I would have done it. I would have done it. And that's the only explanation I gave them. I didn't tell them all the nitty-gritty details or anything like that. I asked them to understand and trust me. And that's what I believe God was doing to for Job. He didn't explain why he was going through all this why he had the losses and so on. He only said, know me and trust me that if I can do this, I can do that. Like Joel was saying, I have, I have a capability of handling the bad situations with you too. The, the hardest thing in loss, I think, is that when somebody comes to you and says, just turn to God, you know. But it's hard to be hugged by a God that you can't see, by a God you normally can't hear, an idea almost of a being is very difficult. God is not necessarily a concrete thing to us. It's more of a energy or a person who's dealing with your mind. And, and when people say turn to God and, and, you know, it just seems insufficient. <laughs> and I don't know if any of you have experienced that. It can be sort of, okay, well, that's great. You know, Satan's already trying to get you disconnected from God. And now people are say, turn to this God that you can't see, you can't hug, that doesn't really, you know, you can't feel the consolation a lot of the times. And, and what I think about this, and maybe you can join in this uh, discussion, is that, yes, at this point in time, we can't see, hug, or usually talk with God. But he has people. He has representatives. He has us. And we can hug. And we can speak. And we can t- listen. And we can weep with those who weep. And mourn with those who mourn, as the Bible says. We can be God's arms and hands and voice and and the tone of our voice and so on that people desperately need in in time they don't need advice i'm a big advice giver i'm a case manager <laughs> by profession i'm a nurse you know do this do that you should be doing this and you know i have a, a sign in my office that says i'm not bossy i just know what you should be doing <laughs> yeah, you know. um 
hard for me not to advise. I've learned the hard way through my own experiences. People normally don't want advice. I asked my grandmother once, who was in her 80s at the time, I said, I noticed you're not giving me much advice. I was sharing some tough, tough times with her, and she was saying, well, by this age, I guess I realize that... Um, People who need advice won't take it anyway, and the people who don't need advice don't need it. <laughs> you know, so what, is, what is the point? So I'm, I'm just suggesting that advice is usually not the best way to handle loss when we have um, friends and relatives who need God's hug and God's voice. Uh, we need caring hearts. And I think one of the one of the benefits and things we can be grateful for for loss in our lives and tough times is that it does build compassion. I was, when I was young, I was very black and white. It was right or wrong. There was no gray, you know. And uh, I don't think I had much sympathy for people, but I do now. <laughs> I have been through a lot in my life. Uh, many, many things. In this past year and a half, uh, my younger sister, my only sibling and younger sister died. My father died. His only sibling, my favorite uncle died. A dear friend died. And so I've had like four major deaths in the past year and a half. And it's not just the deaths. It's like all the medical stuff that happens before the deaths. Because I'm a nurse, so I go with everybody, their appointments, and help them with everything. Then they die, and then you have all the financial issues afterwards. So it's a, it, I thought, boy, I'm kind of tough. I can take it, you know. I have found out in the past year and a half I'm human. <laughs> it knocked me for a loop. It really knocked the wind out of my sails. I really appreciated my friends who just you know, listen to me, listen to me. And I I have one friend I, I will uh, particularly note that the definition of a true friend is this person who, when they called me, I said, I'm just, I'm so busy with work and I've got, my house is a mess and I have company coming and I don't have any food for them and blah, blah, blah. And so she said, okay, well, I'll say goodbye. Then she called back after a little while and said, uh, well, I'm going to come over. And I thought, what about I'm too busy? Do you not understand? And so she came over and cleaned my entire house and brought food for my company while I finished my work. Is that a true friend? Mm-hmm. Not can I help you some way? I mean, she just didn't even ask. <laughs> she goes, I hear the need. I see the need. I'm pitching in. That's God's hands. That's God's arms. That's a true friend. And I would challenge us all to think in terms of that rather than kind of we offer these sentiments, but a lot of the times we don't really uh, do what needs to be done. I want to jump to uh, loss of trust, um, betrayal, that kind of loss, which as I mentioned, you know, I've, I've been divorced. <laughs> I have um, lots of loss of trust issues. And... There's a text that David wrote this, but I believe it is probably something that Jesus would pertain to Jesus as well. Because if you read, if you read the Bible, you'll see David is considered a prophet. He prophesied things. One of the things, Psalm 55, verses 12 to 14 and 16 to 22, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if it, he says, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe was raising himself against me, I could hide from him, but it is you. A man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. But I call to God, and the Lord saves me. 
Evening, morning, and noon I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. He ransoms me unharmed from the battle waged against me, and so on. The lesson um, talks about whether you should try to save a relationship that's broken by uh, trust issues or try to restore and heal. And that's a totally individual thing. People standing outside of a relationship have no idea what goes on behind closed doors. <laughs> I remember one time I was somewhere and this older minister, when he found out I was getting a divorce, he said, what can we do to help you young people not get divorced and all that? But unfortunately, he, I, I do a lot of body language watching. I used to be in sales at one point. And unfortunately, he had demonstrated to me some really interesting um, things, one of which was a total disregard for his wife. So I said, I just really think the best thing you could do is to be a good role model for a man who really loves his wife and, and uh, cherishes her. And that role model will be something that the younger people can appreciate and look up to. As it turns out, this guy really didn't love his wife. He wanted to become a minister. And in his day, you couldn't become a minister unless you were married. So he just picked somebody. But he, to- he treated her with total disdain. And I thought, you don't know anything about my situation. You don't know anything about what I've been through. And you're judging me for something you don't know anything about. And in judging me, you're totally missing what's going on in your own backyard here, you know. It's really tempting to... To, to judge other people when they're going through tough times. What's wrong? You know, I'm old enough now where I remember divorce was just something like, oh, what's wrong with them? You just didn't do it, you know? And now it's the question at Alumni Weekend is, have you been married? <laughs> it's, it's the sort of, well, this is my second marriage or third or whatever. So whether a relationship can be salvaged or not is totally an individual thing. It takes two, <laughs> you know. Um, there's uh, several verses on uh, forgiving that the lesson gives. Humble yourself, forgive. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Um, but I will say that some things are, some people are a, an, an internally burning fire, shall we say. They were wounded in their childhood, never healed, never came to God. Everyone who gets close to them will be hurt by them. If you're married to them or dating them or whatever, if you get close enough, you will be hurt. You will be hurt emotionally or physically or some other way. You will be betrayed. Um, You know, there's you try what you can. You think, well, I'm smart. They're smart. We can work this out. But as the years go by, things get worse instead of better. And and counseling, in my case, right during counseling, there was an affair going on. <laughs> I was like, okay, we can see that this is the best efforts are not going on here. But what if you do have something salvageable? What if both of you really want to work towards um, to repair the broken trust? It's a step-by-step journey. I mean, it's one step forward, two steps back. Um, the trust is always hard to mend. It's better never to have broken trust. In sales, it was better never to have had a bad impression. Once something bad happened in sales, then you had to work so much harder to regain a customer's trust. It was far better 
to make a good impression and do the right thing the first time because broken trust is, is very difficult. So in case you, you know, I, I, there's various things that you can use to help. And I know in some religious circles, counseling is not really the thing we want to talk about, but I do. As a case manager, I had a lot of patients who, who needed counseling. And my first response when I would bring it up, people would go, I'm not crazy. But my response to them, and this is the way I truly look at it, there isn't one single thing you know now that somebody didn't teach you. When you were born, you knew nothing. Everything you learned, and somebody you learned, you learned it by watching other people, how they handled situations, maybe by reading, maybe something, your experience. But say you've got these three cards in your hand, and man, you're playing the cards, like this bad thing happens, okay, I'll do this, I'll do that. And then one day, something really bad happens, and the cards don't work anymore. And you're like, keep playing the cards even more and more, and they still don't work. You are not resolving an issue, you are not being healed. So... I tell people, counselors, people who go into that area, they go to school for years to try to learn other cards to play. So that when you go to counseling, look at it as I want to gain other cards to play in life. These three cards I have are not sufficient anymore. Go get some other cards. <laughs> and people will say, well, I can do that. If, if it has always been the thought you're crazy, you know, no, you're just, as situations have happened in life that you don't have the coping skills for. You don't know how to handle the situation. So get some more cards. And the best way to do that, prayer, obviously, talking with people you trust, people with experience. Many times, if you're very careful about who you choose as friends, you'll find they've been things through things in life you never knew they'd been through. But because you're honest with them, they bring out these things and they tell you what they used, what cards worked in their situation, what brought them through. They're the light that you're at the end of your tunnel. And then when you go through these things, you can be the light at the end of someone else's tunnel. But you have to choose who you talk to carefully because some people use things against you you know um, and every time they see you then they think oh there's that you know <laughs> they can't get it out of their mind then Tuesday's lesson is a loss of trust continued um, talking about violence in the home uh, sadly in Christian homes are included Violence is an assault of any kind verbal physical emotional sexual active uh, or passive neglect um, examples in the Bible Joseph's brothers plotting to kill him Absalom's gorgeous sister Tamar raped by her half-brother uh, the king Judah of Ahaz and Manasseh they sacrificed their children in the fire to the gods we watched in the news and were horrified but we only see the tip of the iceberg because God sees it all and again I want to say his heart is filled with pain I want to just, before we close, I want to read this poem that was written uh, by Elia Wise back in 19-something. Um, she wrote this poem as part of her recovery from being abused as a child. But I found it very helpful and insightful. I was not abused as a child. I have a hard time understanding that. So this helped me, and I want to share it. For children who were broken, it is very hard to mend. 
Our pain was rarely spoken, and we hid the truth from friends. Our parents said they loved us, but they didn't act that way. They broke our hearts and stole our worth with the things that they would say. We wanted them to love us. We didn't know what we did to make them yell at us and hit us and wish we weren't their kid. They'd beat us up and scream at us and blame us for their lives. Then they'd hold us close inside their arms and tell us confusing lies about how they really loved us, even though we were bad and it was our fault they hit us, our fault they were mad. When days were just beginning, we sometimes prayed for them to end. And when the pain kept coming, we learned to just pretend that we were good and so were they. And this was just one of those days. Tomorrow, we'd be friends. We had to believe it so. We had nowhere else to go. Each day that we pretended we replaced reality with lies or dreams or angry schemes in search of dignity until our lies got bigger than the truth and we had no one real to be. Our bodies were forsaken with no safe place to hide. We learned to stop hearing and feeling what they did to our outsides. We tried to make them love us till we hated ourselves instead and couldn't see a way out and wished that they were dead. We scared ourselves by thinking that and scared ourselves to know that we were acting just like them and might evermore be so. To be half the size of a grown-up and trapped inside their pain. To every day lose everything with no savior or refrain. To wonder how it's possible that God could so forget the worthy child you knew you were when you had not been damaged yet. To figure on your fingers that the years till you'd be grown enough to leave the torment and survive away from home were more than you could count to or more than you could bear was the reality we lived in and we knew it wasn't fair. We who grew up broken are somewhat out of time, struggling to mend our childhood when our peers are in their prime. Where others find love and contentment, we still often have to strive to remember we are worthy and heroes just to be alive. Some of us are healing, some are stealing, most are passing the anger on. Some give their lives away to drugs or the promise of life beyond. Some still hide from society, some struggle to belong, but all of us are wishing the past would not hold on so long. There's a lot of digging down to do to find the child within, to love away the ugly pain and feel innocence again. There's forgiveness worthy of angels' wings for remembering those at all who abused our sacred childhood and programmed us to fall, to seek to understand them and how their pain became our own is to risk the ground we stand on to climb the mountain home. The journey is not so lonely as in the past has been. More of us are strong enough to let the growth begin. But while we're trekking up the mountain, we need everything we've got to face the adults we've become and all that we are not. So when you see us weary from the day's internal climb, when we find fault with your best efforts or treat imperfection as purposeful crime, when you see our quick defenses, our efforts to control, our readiness to form a plan of unrealistic goals, when we run into a conflict and fight to the bitter end, remember, we think winning means we won't be hurt again. When we abandon our thoughts and feelings to be what we believe you want us to, or look at trouble we're having and want to blame it all on you, when life calls for new beginnings and we fear they're doomed to end, remember, wounded trust is like a wounded knee. It is very hard to bend. Please remember this when we're out of sorts. Tell us the truth and be our friend. For children who were broken, it is very hard to mend. Let's pray. Dear Father, 
this world offers many wounds. We pray that you, as a ruler of the universe, will come and enter our hearts, enter our wounds, add your solutions, add your healing, add your comfort, mend our minds, mend our broken genetic codes, mend whatever is ill inside us, but never let us go. Just never let us go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.